Turning to hymn number 307, 307, revive us again. see everyone here this morning. Just remember those on the prayer list as you go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, Remember seven-year-old Sadie Gauntz, a daughter of a friend of mine in Shields, uh, going through cancer treatments, has lost her hair and unable to keep food down. Um, but remember her, remember the rest of the folks on the prayer list and uh, other churches that are meeting this day. Remember Brother John, remember the uh, ladies' Bible study as we break for our studies here in a minute. Uh, remember one another, other churches, pastors, our missionaries. Just be in prayer for these things. Upcoming meetings will go over a little later. And uh, remember Brother John and Jim as they bring the message today. Uh, as we go to the Lord in prayer, we want to thank him for things being as well with us as they are. Uh, Brother Jim, would you lead us? Lord, we are mindful of the privilege that we are able to be here this morning. The fact that you brought us through the night while we were, most of us, asleep, not aware of what was going on around us. But Lord, you promised you would never leave us or forsake us. We thank you, Lord, even while we're unaware of it, that you're blessing us. The blessing of the assembly today, 
come together in your house to worship, to lift up your name, and to, to be a witness to others around about as we learn of you today. And uh, may it be a day it's been said to be good to come into your house to worship you. Be with those requests that are made and even the ones that are unspoken, those on the hearts of your people. Lord, we thank you for all your blessings upon us. Go with us through this day and may Jesus Christ be glorified. With his precious name we pray. Amen. We'll break for our classes now. Brother John. If you would like to follow along in your Bibles, if you want to turn to the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, Galatian churches. We're going to continue our study, and probably this will be the last uh, Sunday morning where we talk about the Redeemer and redemption. Uh, then we'll go back to Ruth and pick up the story where we left, left off. But I think it's been important for us to just remind ourselves that God has bought us back. He has traded something for our salvation and for us, and that something is the blood of Christ and the life of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, that's important to remember. Um, so in Galatians chapter 4, um, let's start in verse 1. Uh, now I say that the heir, there's four things in this first verse that describes, it describes Christ, but it's specifically talking about us uh, because he goes on to say, so are we, verse 3, even so we. So he's talking about us using natural, physical relationships as a, an example of what, uh, how spiritual things work. Uh, but this also refers to Christ in a certain way because he took upon himself the um, place of a servant, being obedient to the Father, but yet he became the Son. Um, so this sort of has mixed meanings here. Now I say that the heir, so this is the heir, somebody that's going to inherit the Father's belongings. As long as he is a child, most people start off as babies and become children and then become adults. That's usually the way it is, you know, just instantly become an adult. So the heir, he starts off as a child. As long as he is a child, he differeth nothing from a servant, uh, though he be Lord of all. And you can think of rich people, monarchies, royalty uh, that have servants, uh, that have tutors, that have people that instruct their kids, um, and they're in charge of their kids. Even though the kids are the heirs to the throne or heirs to this vast estate, the governors, the tutors, the nannies, they, they have charge over the children. So that's what he's talking about here. The heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant. The child is told what to do, what to learn, things like that, though he be lord of all. And he says, um, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. 
Now he brings that in and says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Uh, there are several things that he's sort of mixing together here. He talks about the Old Testament law being under bondage to the law. Um, and here he's talking about being in bondage to our flesh, um, the physical things of the world. We're in bondage right now. We can't walk through walls, can we? No, we don't have the glorified body. Even though we've been redeemed, uh, we've been saved, and we have all the, the blessings of being the heir of God, well, it's still sort of limited right now. We, we don't have all the blessings yet. Uh, we will in, inherit these eventually. So he says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that he, we might receive the adoption of sons. And this is the reason why Jesus came is to redeem us that were under the law. This section really is not talking about each one of us personally, individually. This is what they call the history of salvation. Uh, Paul is talking about the entire, from Genesis 1-1 up to that point in time when he was writing this, that God was revealing himself, God was um, manifesting more of what salvation was, more about the Messiah, more about his plan to redeem back his people, uh, that he had a people. This is called the history of salvation, how God little by little makes it known unto the prophets and unto his people until finally Jesus Christ comes. And that's what's happening here, that mankind, uh, specifically God's elect, they were heirs, but they were children. They were, they were servants under bondage, under the law, um, until Christ came. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, under the law. Now you notice he was made of a woman, which means he became a child. He's under the law, so he's under a tutor, under a governor. You see how this all fits together. Uh, so Jesus Christ took this position, verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law. He had to become under the law so that he could redeem other people that were under the law. He bought us out. Um, you can sort of think of Moses as a type of Christ when he left Egypt at the age of 40 and had committed murder, and he found out it was known to other people that it was known that he had committed murder, and he decided to flee, and he fled, and God appeared to him and at the age of 80 and told him to go back. So he went back in Pharaoh's presence maybe to answer for the charges. Now, we, never, we don't read anywhere in the Bible where he was charged with murder. I don't know, they just forgot about it or they forgave him or whatever happened, how that works. But he had to go back to the place that he fled. He had to go back sort of under the eye of Pharaoh and back to Egypt where, of course, that was a bad place. Uh, Egypt usually is seen as a symbol of evil. Um, so the, Christ did the same thing. He came to where his people was, just like Moses went back to where his people was, uh, where they were. So he did this to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So now we're, he's redeeming us from the law, as it says, those that were under the law, but it's also to receive adoption of sons. 
that we might be brought into a special place. Uh, he's giving up his rightful heirship, uh, coming to the earth, living as a pauper, um, so that he can redeem us and we might have all those blessings. Uh, he paid for them, and now we receive those blessings. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Uh, verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. And you see how Paul ties all this together again. At verse 7, talking about the same words that he talked about in verse 1, being a son, being a servant, being an heir. He, this is all, that's the reason why I read the whole thing instead of just verse 5. But part of this um, whole system that God instituted is redemption. Redemption from the law, redemption to be now considered a son of God. Uh, which, of course, is very good. Uh, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, my Bible is just one page over. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we'll just read one verse, verse 7. It's talking about Christ here, uh, adoption of children by Jesus Christ to, to himself, um, in whom, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. Now, the blood is not just the blood, even though the Bible says blood, um, but it's emblematic of his whole life, his whole being. Remember, even in the Torah, it says the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. So he gave his life. When it says he gave his blood, he gave his life uh, for us. Uh, so we, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This again brings us out of the law. You know, if you're, it's sort of the same thing being brought out from underneath the bondage of the law. That means the law has no more effect on us. Well, being no more effect under the law, that means we're not guilty. So that's forgiveness of sins. Uh, I don't have any law to judge you on, so you're free to go. You know, the, the law's been paid for. Uh, and that's the redemption that he's talking about here. Even the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And it is by grace that he gives us these things. Uh, if you'll look in the same chapter, Ephesians 1 verse 14, talking about the Holy Spirit of promise. Um, verse, well, start in verse 12. Am I in the right spot? Okay, just verse 14, verse 14 which is the earnest, that's the Holy Spirit, is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. There is a purchased possession. We belong to God. No, we are not our own. We are not our own. We can't just do whatever we feel like doing. We are a purchased possession. Uh, God purchased us with a dear price, the life of his son, the blood of his son. So we are that possession. Um, the earnest of our inheritance, you know what earnest money is? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit is. We don't have all the inheritance yet. You know, we're not living with Christ right now. We're not living free from sin. We're not living with no more tears. I mean, we're still living on this earth. So our inheritance, even though it's sure and it's there, uh, we haven't taken hold of it all yet. So the Holy Spirit was sent as an earnest to that inheritance. It's like God saying, I'm promising you an inheritance and to show you, to, to give you some hope that it's going to happen, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit 
that, that will comfort you, that will guide you, that will lead you, will answer questions, guide you in your understanding of the scriptures, guide you in interpersonal relationships. And the Holy Spirit will be there uh, right alongside you. Every step that you go, the Holy Spirit will be there. And that, every time you feel that leading of the Holy Spirit and that guiding and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that should remind you that, hey, I've got an inheritance. Yes, this might be a horrible place that I'm in right now, but God has promised me an inheritance. And because of his giving of the Spirit, that is the earnest of that inheritance. That's the promise uh, that he's serious about it, and then it's going to happen, going to happen. But we are a purchased possession. Uh, that's what we are. If you'll go to Colossians uh, chapter 1. And here's where we're going to start with verse 12. Verse 12 says, Colossians 1, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us, see it's God that does it, he makes us, he made us meet or fit or appropriate to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He's the one that has formed us to be able to be partakers of this inheritance. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Again, God has done that. He delivered us. And even the word delivered has the idea of redemption. Remember, we talked about the kinsman redeemer, what he does. He delivers somebody from their plight, from their poverty, from their hunger, from their situation. So being delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Uh, that's where we are right now. We are in the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption, uh, in whom, referring to the son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And here it's, again, very specific that it is the forgiveness of sins. That is one part of being bought back from being guilty of sins. Right. We now have forgiveness of sins. If you turn to Titus chapter two, like I said, I would like to get finished with this today. So I'm not gonna say a whole lot about some of these. And again, we're going to look in Titus chapter two, uh, verse 14, who, referring to Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now, for here would be in exchange of. He's giving himself in exchange for us. You know, I'll give you $500 for that car in exchange for the car. We're going to make an exchange here. I give you this, you give me that. So we've exchanged something. And that's what this is, what's going on here. He gave himself in exchange for us. Now here it says he gave himself. I thought John 3.16 says God gave. You know, and it does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yeah, well, Jesus Christ is God. He also gave himself, even though the Father also gave Jesus Christ. Right. So it doesn't matter who exactly it says gave because they all, all three people of the Trinity are involved in this. So Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Now, this I think is a hopeful kind of a message like from right now. 
that yes, that's one of the things about our redemption is that we are conquerors. We are more than conquerors and we should be able to fight off temptations. We should be able to fight off certain sins that, that trip us up. They shouldn't trip us up forever and ever and ever for the rest of our life. We should be victorious over these sins. Um, so, but this is when he's redeemed us from all iniquity. Obviously, we're not going to be sinless until the day we die when we get our glorified body. Then we will be totally redeemed from iniquity. Right now, he's given us the Holy Spirit to fight this off. First um, Corinthians ten thirteen: No temptation hath taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. That's a promise. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that year, but, but will be able to withstand that temptation. Uh, so, you know, this does have something for us today, but we got to sort of modify that with the idea that, yes, we're still in this flesh. We're not going to live sinless lives. Or, you know, we're, we're, it's a fight. It's something that Paul says, I keep my body down daily. In fact, in another place, he says, I die daily. Daily, he looks at his physical wants and desires and says, nope, this is bad. I, I, I need to make these go away. So he redeems us from all iniquity. And this is specifically being justified. We are justified um, on account of what Jesus Christ did. When God looks at us, he looks at us as sinless. Not because we are, but because we've been bought by Christ. His sinlessness now has been put on us and our sins have been put on him. Again, there's an exchange there. It's an exchange. And that's what he says, that he might redeem us, buy us back from iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And this is one reason why I know this can't be taken just in the future. In the future, how many good works are we going to be doing in heaven? Now, the Bible doesn't really speak a lot about heaven and about afterlife. I mean, it's got some things to say, but, you know, there, there's a lot of questions about exactly what's going to go on for eternity, you know, for eternity. I mean, that's a long time. That's forever. That's a lot of years. So, but the Bible is sort of quiet on some of that, you know, what's going to happen. But it says that we are zealous of good works. That means right now. That's why I say this being redeemed from iniquity is sort of right now also. Amen. Even though it's, it gets its fulfillment in the future when we are justified, you know, civilly in a court. But this has to do with right now he has redeemed us from iniquity and purified us unto himself as a peculiar people and made us zealous of good works. That's why anybody that is not zealous of good works, I put a big question mark by their salvation. You know, can they really claim to be saved if they are not zealous of good works? Have they been redeemed? Have they been saved? Is the Holy Spirit working on them? Is the Holy Spirit the, the earnest of their salvation? Uh, there are certain people that just, you know, they don't act like they're saved. Now they might be, you know, when, I'm not judging. That's not our job to judge. Uh, we just preach the Bible and we'll let the Bible do the judgment sometimes. But, you know, verses like this are very clear that these are characteristics of saved people, wow. people that have been redeemed and bought into the possession of God. Um, so that was Titus. Uh, let's go to 
Hebrews chapter 9. And we're just going to read two verses here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. And we've read this before, but just to show you that it is not only in Paul, but it's also in the writer of Hebrews. And then we'll get to Peter and John in Revelation. Uh, we'll see how other writers talk about the same thing. So here in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, talking about sacrifices. And verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, and of course that's Old Testament, blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Amen. Now, going into the holy place, the high priest could only go into the holy of holies one time a year, and he had to have a sacrifice. He couldn't go in without sacrifice, right. and it had to be a blood sacrifice, had to be a blood sacrifice. And that's what the writer is talking about, is that Jesus Christ goes into the Holy of Holies with his own blood. And that sacrifice in the Old Testament, it was only for the Israelites. That high priest was not the high priest of the Amorites, or the Perserites, or the Canaanites, or the Philistines, or the Babylonians. No, that high priest was the high priest of the Israelites, of the Jewish people. And the sacrifice that he took in on behalf of the Israelites and behalf of the Jews, a particular people, it was only for them. Well, that's the same thing here. And I think that's the reason why the, the King James translators put in for us at the end, because that's the, what the Old Testament was all about. The high priest serviced for Israel, those people, God's elect. God's picked people. Well, same thing here. Jesus Christ enters into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, it's eternal because, and the writer of Hebrews talks about that, because Jesus only had to do it once. The high priests that were in the Old Testament, they had to do it every year, every year, every year, go into the holy of holies. And every day they did other sacrifices for sins. Every day there was animals being killed, blood being spilled, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And that's what the writer of Hebrews constantly says is, hey, they had to do it over and over because really it didn't clean up sin. It was just a sign that they were obedient to God, that they were sorry for their sin. But it didn't really clean up the sin, unlike Jesus's blood that did. It did actually clean up sin. It did actually buy redemption for us his people, a specific number of people. Um, so this is this verse is like filled with all kinds of good stuff. And if you look down in verse uh, 15, the same chapter, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Um, there's all kinds of good things in this verse, too. Um, well, for one thing, he calls it the New Testament, and then he talks about the First Testament. Um, if you look, just for kicks, if you look over in chapter 8, uh, verse 7, it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second there's a first covenant and a second covenant, a first testament and a second testament. But if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I know this is a little aside, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
And if you look in verse 9, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not the Second Testament, but the New Testament, and then look down in verse 14, talking about the veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. So there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, and those are New Testament terms, Old Testament, New Testament. Now, of course, you find that like in Jeremiah, I think it's 31, talking about the new covenant that God will make with Israel. Um, so we should not shy away from referring to the Old Testament as the Old Testament, and the New is the New Testament. I know some people, they want to stick with the words like he does here, the First Testament and the Second Testament. Those are biblical phrases too, so if you'd rather do it that way. If I'm around a Jewish person, I wouldn't use either term. I would probably call the Old Testament the Hebrew Bible. I mean, there's no sense in offending people. If they're offended by the term Old Testament, well, yeah, we don't have to call it the Old Testament. Call it the Hebrew Bible, because that's what it is. It's the Hebrew Bible. It was written mostly in Hebrew, the little Aramaic thrown in, in Ezra and other places. So it is the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so, and we can refer to it as that uh, with no, no disparity of, of words and terms. But the important thing in this verse, Hebrews 9, verse 15, uh, for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. Uh, again, it's his death that does it. Now, you notice it doesn't say anything about his blood here. It just says by his death. Well, those are all mixed in, whether he gave his life, whether he died, whether he gave his blood, uh, however you want to say it, because it all means the same thing. It all means the same thing. And then if you go to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll just read two verses here. Uh, verse 18, For as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, a lot of people try to redeem themselves with corruptible things. There's churches that say, well, you know, if you give so much money, we can forgive so many sins. That's really what Martin Luther was all about. Martin Luther, when he wrote his 95 theses, put them on the, the, you know, the, the door and um, caused such a stir, most of those 95 theses, those 95 points that he makes up, most of them are about the indulgences that were going around at that time. There were priests uh, going around, Catholic priests, and they were actually selling indulgences. There was a thing where, like I said, if you gave so much money, the priest could forgive certain sins. Well, they took it a step further and said, well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna write you a little paper, an indulgence, and if you give us so much money, we'll give you this paper of forgiveness so that when in the future you commit a sin, you have, will have already paid money for that sin. You've already got your indulgence and you'll already be forgiven for that sin. And Martin Luther, reading the Bible, he says, no, this is wrong. <laughs> These indulgences, buying your own sins, you know, uh, what, what, what do they do with verses like this? When it says, you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Yeah, you can't give enough money, silver and gold, to, to redeem one sin. Amen. Corruptible things from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but you are redeemed, as in the lips, 
you know, because he says you are not redeemed in verse 18, but in verse 19, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. You notice how he puts in precious. Uh, do you notice up in verse 18 when he talks about the gold and the silver? He doesn't say precious gold. He doesn't say precious, valuable silver. No, it's corruptible. Those are corruptible things. We're talking about spiritual things here, spiritual sins, your spiritual soul, spiritual life. So it has to be a spiritual redemption, equal exchange here. No matter how much gold you give, you can't redeem your own sins. But it has to be with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And of course, that has all kinds of Old Testament ramifications too. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 5, and we have just read this recently, but I'm going to read it again because it is so good. Uh, even in the, the end times, Jesus Christ is adored. Yes, because he was virgin born, which, you know, to read the Bible, how many times does the virgin birth, how, how many times is it mentioned? Two of the Gospels don't even mention it, much less the rest of the New Testament. Now, we think it's pretty important because that means he didn't have an earthly father, which means he didn't have the Adamic nature put on him. So, I mean, it is important, but it's interesting how the New Testament doesn't really focus on that very much. You know, find how many times the virgin birth is mentioned. Virgin conception, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, not very many times. So why is Jesus so lifted up? Well, let's read right why he's so lifted up. Revelation chapter 5. Verse one, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? That's the question, who is worthy? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under earth, which was, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. There's not a single person that is worthy. Not a single person is worthy to do this job. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said to me, weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, when it says hath prevailed, that means he hath done a work. He has done something. He has become victorious. And that's why he's worthy to open the book. He is victorious. And he's mentioned as a lion here, lion of the tribe of Judah. And I beheld low in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. You notice, and like I said, when we read this before, I mentioned the same thing. Very next verse, the, the, the scene changes from looking at this person as a lion that's victorious and has energy and power, the king of the beast. All of a sudden, it's a lamb. All of a sudden, it's a lamb. Uh, as it had been slain, you picture a lamb with its guts hanging out and a throat slit and blood pouring out, and that's what it is, a, a dead lamb. Uh, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth, he came. Now, having been slain, that's past tense, of course, having been slain, uh, but yet he came and took the book. That means he's still alive, isn't it? He's alive. Yeah, he's not dead. Yeah, he at one time was dead, but now he's alive and he's active and he's still doing things. 
Um, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. They sung a new song, saying, the very first verse of this new song is, Thou art worthy. Amen. That's why we lift up Jesus Christ so much. He was the payment. He was the trade for us that en enabled us to be partakers of the inheritance, to be partakers of the forgiveness of sins, to be partakers of the Holy Spirit, to be partakers of all the spiritual blessings that God gives us. Jesus Christ was the payment that was paid. So that's why he is worthy, because he has redeemed. Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, now, you know, you were slain at one time. Well, there he is. He's alive. You see him. He's walking around. He goes over and takes the book. Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Look at all the stuff that this redemption buys us. I mean, you hate to, I mean, say it in that way, that almost cheapens it. That, you know, we bought, something was bought here, but that's what redemption is. It's an exchange. Right. There's a purchased price that has to be paid. Amen. And Jesus paid the price, but look at the things that's mentioned here. He redeemed us to God. Right. We were strangers and aliens from God. We were enemies of God, and we were redeemed back to God. We can call God our Father now. Through this redemption, he goes on to say, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth as kings and priests. Um, you know, this redemption that has been given to us, uh, this position because of the redemption is, is miraculous. Yeah. And then one other place in Revelation 14, they sing this song after the questions asked, who is worthy? Uh, Jesus is worthy. The Lamb is worthy because he hath redeemed us to our God. Uh, chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 3, and they, sung a, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. No man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, they are virgins. These are they that which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. Verse 3 ends, they were redeemed from the earth. How many times does the New Testament talk about this earth is not our home? We are strangers. We are pilgrims. We are passing through. Uh, the systems of government, the, I mean, the beast, the, the bat system, bat mystery Babylon. I mean, you know, governments that are crooked and deceitful and lie and, and do all kinds of bad stuff. Well, as we saw in the one verse, we have been translated into the kingdom of, our, of God's dear son. We've been translated into a different kingdom. We have been redeemed from this earth. Amen even though we're still on this earth right now. We've been redeemed from the earth. And then verse four, it says, these were redeemed from among men. We were bought, we were picked out, we were specifically pointed out by God and said, these are my people. Amen. That's election, I elect these people. And Jesus Christ redeemed those people. 
just like the high priest. When he goes in and does the sacrifice, it's not for all the men of the world. It's not for the entire, every person born from Adam. No, it's for God's people. It's for the people that were named in the covenant. Well, if you've been born into the covenant, guess what? You're part of the covenant. The redemption is for you. The sacrifice is for you, a specific people. So we were redeemed from among men. God bought a certain people, and those are his people. And we are the first fruits. Well, the 144,000 are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, which means there's going to be more than just that. You know, not to badmouth Jehovah's Witnesses, but they always said the 144,000 were all Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, until their denomination, their cult, got so big, they got over 144,000. Then they had to sort of change their teaching a little bit. And it's like, well, okay, now it's just the, the, the priest or the, the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses. And now they're up to, I don't know, million, two million, five million, a hundred million. I don't know how many there are. You can Google it and find out. But they're way over 144,000 now. Uh, so this 144,000, though, were redeemed by God. So when we get back to Ruth, remember all of this. The book of Ruth is actual history. It actually happened. But it's also included in the Bible to show us how the kinsman redeemer system works. Amen. That somebody had to give up something in order to buy back a specific person, or in this case, Ruth and Naomi, two people, and the land that went with them and raise up a child unto the, the name of the dead, dead husband. So there's, I mean, that's a perfect analogy, perfect type of Jesus Christ and the redemption that he does for his people, uh, giving a gift, giving an exchange for something else. And all these verses are very, very important for us to sort of remember. Thank Amen. you.